0: You're listening to The Big Show with Russick and Rose on the official home of your Calgary Flames, Sportsnet 960 The Fan.
1: Hour number two. It's The Big Show, Russick and Rose, Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Live from Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studio at the bottom of the hour, ESPN NHL senior writer Greg Wyshynski will join us. Mike Babcock's story still has legs. We'll talk to Wish about that. We'll get his opinion on Elias Lindholm whether or not he stays and where's potentially a good spot for Noah Hannafin in Wish's opinion. We'll talk to him at seven 30. Our man, Julian McKenzie. He was at the flames charity golf tournament working while Maddie and I were swinging the sticks around hobnobbing. Yeah. Rubbing elbows. Yeah. Meeting the people. Um, we'll talk to our man, J Mac coming up at eight o'clock and Men we'll play people. Impossible Flames trivia at 8.30. Your chance to win a $50 gift card to VK Bruco and some swag. But right now, fresh off, the Blue Jays just getting waxed by the Rangers in a four-game series. Uh, Ben Nicholson-Smith, Blue Jays columnist and analyst for Sportsnet at the Letters Podcast on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest online. BNS, good morning. How are you?
2: Good morning. I'm doing pretty well. Unfortunately (laughs) for the Blue Jays, they cannot say the same for how their week has gone at all.
1: Um, does that seven in that seventh inning where Vladdy's up, teams down by two, two runners on. He misses two center cut fastballs at ninety-seven. Uh, Ben, doesn't that encapsulate the Blue Jays offense for this entire season? Just missed opportunities and big, big moments. And I know a lot of baseball's, you know, recency bias, prisoner of the moment, but to me last night that just felt like this offense the entire season in a nutshell.
2: Yeah, and I think that also could have been a moment where Vlad Jr. and the Blue Jays' offense collectively could have bailed out the rest of the team, and they could have actually come back and and made things close. And we just haven't seen a lot of comeback wins from this team. We haven't seen a lot of trademark moments, you know, these special um, highlight reel plays that you remember six months later or even a couple years later. And yeah, that would have been a great chance for it because – Like you said, LeClerc put some fastballs right over the middle. The last one in on Vladdy's hands was pretty nasty, but the first two were hittable. I mean, those are the kind of pitches that MVPs hit, and he didn't do it. So, you know, at the same time, like, I, you know, I want to give Vlade credit. He did homer earlier in the game, so it's not like he was out there doing nothing. He did hit a home run, but that absolutely would have been a moment where, you know, you would want to see him do it again and maybe have a two-home run game.
1: Uh, ben, being around this team, how much are they pressing offensively?
2: I think they are pressing um, in the sense of they expand the zone um, unnecessarily at times. Um, I think we saw some mental mistakes yesterday, which to me is reflective of a team that's pressing, and I don't just mean at the plate, but you see David Schneider and Boba Chat going for a ground ball at the middle and then just both pulling up, and you see Jimmy Garcia go toward a bunt and then no one's yelling seemingly for what base to throw to. And he doesn't know where to go and he just eats it and the Rangers get a hit and another run. So these are mental mistakes um, that I don't think it's because they don't care, but it's a lot of pressure. Um, this group is tense. You can see it in the dugout. You can see it on their faces. You can see it in the clubhouse afterwards. Not fun. Like it's not fun right now. And uh, I'm not saying it should be. Um, you know, Ideally, you'd want baseball to be a bit more fun, but you'd also want some more wins. So um, you lose four in a row to your biggest rival at home with your fans booing you, it's it's not going to be a good time.
0: What did you make of the starters throughout this run? It was kind of the thing that we felt could give the Jays maybe a little bit of an edge in this series, and it ended up not necessarily being the case.
2: Yeah, you know, I think the starters uh, definitely disappointed this week. Kevin Gosman wasn't as good as he normally is. Same for Kikuchi, same for Bassett. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty rough. I mean, at the same time, that's going to happen. The Jays, uh, as a as a team, still has the third best DRA in the American League this year. They they've been great as far as the pitching, and uh, they'll need those guys as they move ahead here. But yeah, I, I do think definitely fair to say it wasn't very good this week. You could also apply that to the bullpen too. With mm-hmm. you know, you look at Trevor Richards and called into a big spot and he ends up allowing a lot of damage not to my surprise like i'm not second guessing here because i was saying that at the time um that they made that move that i didn't like it and i thought it should have been hicks or jimmy garcia or maybe even jordan romano um but yeah there you go trevor richards comes in and he starts struggling so you know this is a team right now that's um tired obviously as most teams are the rangers also are That's not an excuse but you know, one way or another, they've got to find results. And they just haven't done it. So, you know, now they're in a spot where they are very much on the outside looking in. And they probably need a little bit of help from some of the teams they're chasing. Uh, because if Texas and Seattle run off, you know, 12-4 and 4 to finish the season, uh, Jays are not going to make it. And even if Texas and Seattle go 8-8, and 8, the Jays are going to have to play really well. And uh, the way they're going right now, I mean, that seems like a long... Uh, way to go
0: how much do you factor the Danny Jansen injury to what we saw from kind of the guys of the rotation
2: um you know I'd probably connect Jansen more to offensive struggles than um than defensive so far I mean in the course of a season Danny Jansen's definitely going to make a difference that will definitely um you know show up in, in certain moments um but Let's say, yeah, they've played 12, 13 games since he's been injured. Let's say Jansen probably would have caught six of those. Um, instead, you have a bit more Kirk, you have a bit more Heinemann. I don't think that's made a difference in the standings. Um, you know, maybe it's made a difference for of a few runs here and there. Um, but, you know, Jansen, really, really good player. Uh, you know, obviously hurts to have him on the sidelines for the rest of the, the regular season, probably the rest of the entire year. Um, but I don't think it's a huge, huge difference maker.
1: Ben, how surprised are you that the, the start Matt Chapman had at the beginning of the year? And obviously he's dealt with some injuries. He was incredible at the beginning of the year. And you would think, you know, the Blue Jays are going to sign an extension uh, with Matt Chapman. But at this point, they're just going to let him walk to free agency, aren't they, Ben?
2: Yeah, I think that's the by far the most likely situation here. Um, and it's good that he was able to come back. They need him. You know, they're a better team with him on the field um, for sure. But at this point, it's definitely likely that, you know, at the end of the season, whatever that is, maybe two weeks or maybe longer, um, Matt Chapman would hit free agency. I think the Blue Jays still would offer him a qualifying offer, despite the struggles that he's had really since since April. And um, I think he'll decline and see what's out there for him on the broader market and – Yeah, the chances of him coming back to Toronto might have actually increased a little bit if he's looking at, you know, maybe some shorter term options. But if he's looking Mm -hmm. for a big long term deal, you know, I would think it would probably be a team like the Mets that was scouting the Blue Jays yesterday. Um, You know, a team like the Angels, one of those bigger market teams um, that has a need for a really good position player, which, of course, Matt Chapman can be.
1: That 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 sound that sounds like such an angel signing, Matt Chapman. Um, ben Nicholson-Smith, Blue Jays columnist, analyst for Sportsnet at the Letters Podcast, joining us here on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Broadcast Hotline. Big show, Russick and Rose 960, The Fan. Um, again, 15 games left, Ben, just one and a half games out. Season's not over. This team can get hot, get into the playoffs. That would be fantastic. But playing, you know, worst case scenario, and this team misses the postseason, somebody's going to have to pay for this right? Is it the manager? Is it the GM? Like, what's your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. I, uh, you know, it's one of those topics that up until this week I was like, you know what, like, let's just get to the end of the season. Let's just, let's just get there first. And I I think obviously still we want to do that because they could still make it as, as remote as that seems. Um, so I think, you know, you get to the end of the season first for the most part, but as they've continued losing games this week, Uh, I've thought about that more, and I'm sure that others have thought about that more as well because it's been very disappointing for the organization uh, to have a season with so much promise uh, fall off so quickly. So I think that you look at the hitting, right? Like this is a group that has 120 homer hitter. Uh, They have uh, an offense collectively that is very much middle of the pack to to bottom. I think they're 18th in Major League Baseball in home runs. Um, that's a problem. Like, they should be a lot better than that when you look at the players on their team and you look at the resources devoted to this to this roster. Um, so I would start by doing a thorough evaluation of the hitting. And so that would mean everyone from Guillermo Martinez and Hunter Mentz to uh, Dave Hudgens is involved in that. Um, you'd talk to John Schneider about that. You'd look at your, your development people. You'd talk to some of the hitters themselves. Like, we're getting to the point that, You know, you need to have a real look at that and be really open to making any changes. I wouldn't think that anyone from that group that I just named has a guarantee of coming back. And even if they do advance, I still would look at the hitting Um, Mm. because it's been pretty underwhelming. It's just not good, and you need to have good hitting to win Major League Baseball games.
1: Um, We know it feels like they're just you know joined at the hip and and, and they're a package deal. But do you see a scenario where Mark Shapiro would actually fire Ross Atkins?
2: Well, um, stranger things have happened in Major League Baseball. Um, You know, I think that there's a lot of trust between those two, and you can certainly point to a lot of good things that Ross Atkins has done, including building this pitching staff that's been very, very good. So it would still surprise me if that was uh, the case. But, you know, look, we saw the Red Sox dismiss Heim Bloom. Um, yesterday, their president of baseball operations, these things happen sometimes. So, um, you know, no one has these jobs for life. That's for sure. Um, And and so I, I wouldn't say that that's off the table, but it's also not the first place that my mind goes.
0: This series against the Red Sox, this is a group that has given the Jays some trouble. They lost their first seven games to them, but then won the most recent three. But how different is this Red Sox team than the one they played last?
2: Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a ball club that I think has struggled to find pitching uh, all season, but they have some really good promising young hitters and Tristan Casas obviously is the, the name front and center there. When you think about, you know, how the Blue Jays have, um, what versions of the Red Sox, the Blue Jays have faced this season. Casas has really come into his own later in the year. And he's got, I think, 24 home runs, OPS around 850, just a really nice developmental success story for them. So, uh, that's that's a positive. At, at the same time, the Red Sox are missing some key contributors, including, including Jaron Duran, who's on the sidelines, Masataki Yoshida, who was so good. He's been amazing against the Blue Jays in particular this season. But Yoshida uh, has kind of run into some fatigue, hasn't been quite as good um, this this um, last few weeks. Um, so this is a Red Sox team that's tired again. They just fired their, their GM, played a doubleheader yesterday. Like they're Uh, you know, presumably they're going to be kind of running on some fumes too. So in theory, it could be a good time to face the Red Sox, but it's an even better time to face the Blue Jays. That's for sure.
1: Uh, Ben, obviously all the attention now, whether or not this team is going to make the playoffs, the stress involved with that after last season's, you know, just terrible game two loss to the Mariners, get back to the postseason, try to make some noise. With all the the attention paid to this team and trying to get into the playoffs, Doesn't this feel like this Alec Manoa story should be bigger than maybe it is right now?
2: You know, it's, um, yeah, it's a story that I've, I've definitely, um, found pretty interesting and tried to, tried to, um, you know, do as much reporting on as I can. And I think there is more to come there on, you know, what it means for Manoa and the Blue Jays moving forward in this. I mean, we know now he's not going to pitch, um, this season, but you know, what does this look like going forward? Um, you know, he was supposed to be their opening. He was their opening day starter. He was supposed to be uh, an all star caliber pitcher. We all know that didn't happen. So, yeah, I think that, if that you know, that's, that's a big story anytime that happens across Major League Baseball. Um, and it's not all that common. So, absolutely, I think it should be a big story. I think it will continue to have sort of offshooting implications for the Blue Jays as they make their decisions going into this offseason and beyond. Um, so it's it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Um, I, I think that there's some work to do as far as mending that relationship and making sure that everyone's on the same page with respect to what it means for Alec Manoa to be a good Major League pitcher again and, mm-hmm. and what timeline that takes and what form that takes, and so there are some real questions there, and I, I think that right now those answers aren't at the forefront of things because the Jays are trying to win Major League games, but right. sometime soon they're going to have to look at that.
1: Is this a maturity thing or lack thereof? Because if you just look at his performance, he wasn't getting it done at the big league level. And there's something going on with him that maybe we don't know. And I'm sure it'll eventually come out. But is it easy to say just, you know, he's being a little immature in all of this, not wanting to be down at AAA?
2: Well, I think that some more maturity would help anyone in their career I'd take some if myself included done, some Ben yes thank you absolutely yeah I'd love some more for George too yep yeah <laughs> yeah exactly right um, it tends to probably be useful in anyone's career and I would say that it could be very useful to Alec Manila in his career and um, when that arrives you know who knows um, it's not to say that like look like there's a there are legit physical things right he's dealing with knee back and quad issues so there are physical things going on okay so we can all agree on that. Along with that, yeah, he could definitely benefit from taking a deep breath and yeah. saying, how can I get myself through this? How can I do what's in the best interest of the team and myself, and how do these things align, and how can I just let what happened go? How can I let the last Oof. few months go and just move ahead? And I think that that would be, you know, if he could do that, I think that would benefit him. That's just my personal opinion, so he's not asking me for any <laughs> any help or advice, right. but that is my personal opinion.
1: Uh, ben, it's all setting up for a fascinating off season. Uh, if this team does in fact miss the postseason, season, uh, there'll be a lot of question marks surrounding the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, BNS. Thanks for this pal. Let's do it again soon.
2: Yeah. Thanks a lot, George. Have a Good to talk to you guys and uh, have a good one.
1: There's has Ben, ben Nicholson, Smith, Blue Jays columnist and analyst for Sportsnet at the letters podcast on the Atlas pizza and sports bar guest hotline. Yeah. Um, it, the, the Manoa story to me is fascinating because it's like, oh, I don't want to pitch in triple A. Well, you suck at the major league level, so you, they can't win with you on the mound. Like Chances are you're not going to be good enough, and I get what you did last season. You were an all-star, third in Cy Young. I get all of that, but you lost it this season, and that happens to the best of them. And again, it's not the same situation with Roy Halladay because he didn't have the success mm-hmm. that Alec Manoa had that early on in his career, but when they surefire Hall of Famer like Roy Halliday mm-hmm. can go down to AAA and work on his mechanics and come back to the big league level. So can you, Alec Manoa. Yeah,
3: I, I this happens around Major League Baseball a ton where guys will pop up, have a, a really good year, really show up their thing, and then they just completely fall off. It's baseball's it, about adjustments. It's all about adjustments. This game is it will it's such a grind. It's a 162 game grind, and that's just not that's just the regular season. There's so much work you put in the off season and, and the pitcher and pitchers on top of it. What they had all the new rules that they had to figure out this offseason and And whatnot, and obviously Manoa struggled with the pitch clock. I felt like he never had a he wanted the time to to grow up there and just like just take his time. And I think the pitch clock has been thrown a wrench into his his whole thing. And obviously, we talk about the physical part of Manoa, like he's obviously showing wear and tear at such a young age. That's not great. The thing for me is that this is a guy
0: who showed up to the majors what. Two years, three
3: years before I think anybody expected him to. After he was drafted, yep, came in. I was... mean, he was, a, he was a mid-round pick, like a top fifteen pick. Like he probably yep. got to the majors at at a kind of a yeah, decent but, time. Yeah, the way like, prospects okay, go, yeah, now. like I, I,
1: I don't gauge like, yeah, because again, the baseball yeah. draft is such a crap. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. so mm-hmm. yeah, he
0: gets to the majors yeah. before mm-hmm. we would have expected. Mm-hmm. He has results that are way better than I would argue even mm-hmm. he would have expected. And then he comes in. There's a whole bunch of changes. Don't know what the offseason was like, but I'm going to imagine that it was probably very similar to what a lot of Alec Manoa off seasons had been like because if it ain't broken, don't fix it. And now yeah. it's broken. And yeah. now you have to go in the offseason. You have to try something completely different and try and get your body right and try and get your mind right and make yeah. sure that this is part of the thing that you want to be a part of. Because the other thing, too, if you got one foot out the door, may as well put two feet out the door. Like if this has soured you so much, then you got to do it. Yeah,
1: but at the same time, he's a young guy. Yeah, that's what I'm, and and that's why I agree with you. And if if you're going to have this attitude, you think other teams don't look at that and go, you know, clearly it's not like he was blockbuster on the mound and the blue. He's so hard done by by the Blue Jays. He sucked this year, outside of a couple starts that won in Yankee Stadium. He hasn't been good. He's a young
0: man who has had. Who's lived like and, as good as you can in the majors and been as low as you can in the majors right. in
1: one calendar year, and also it's not like he has electric stuff where mm-hmm. he's throwing like a hundred miles no. an hour. No, no, he he doesn't. Yeah. He's got good stuff, but mm-hmm. he, for a guy his size, he mm-hmm. doesn't throw as hard as you think he does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, he needs to get his mind right. He needs to be back to being Alec Manoa, and he needs to put all this behind him because uh, it's just it, it doesn't work like just. I don't whatever side you're on and I'm always player first but his performance just wasn't good enough this season and luckily the Blue Jays have had all this good pitching around him because they would have been in some big time trouble um, I want to do this TMZ story thing I talked about Thursday Night Football but I don't think we have time because I want to get to Greg Wyshynski right at 730 because this Mike Babcock story uh, continues to have legs and I don't know where it's going to end it up and I thought Matt Uh, Maddie brought up a great point. If it wasn't Mike Babcock, are we talking about this at all right now? I think that's a a great point. We'll ask Wish about that coming up. We'll do the TMZ Thursday night football thing later on.
0: I have another wrinkle to maybe throw in here, I guess. Um, Obviously, the NHL and NHLPA, there's a meeting between them. The Babcock situation is going to be the main focus today. But Darren Drager on uh, one of the TSN platforms today said, listen, Mike Babcock's tenure in Columbus is not necessarily locked in after this. There are some some questions per se. Oh, boy. He wouldn't say it's happening, but Mm. he said that it has been brought up.
1: Okay. That's the way it was framed. Uh, We'll talk to Greg Wachinski next. Julian McKenzie at the top of the next hour will play Impossible Flames Trivia at 8.30. Lots to come. It's the Big Show. Russick and Rose Sportsnet 960. The Fan. Live from Doug Lacey's Basement System, downtown studio. It's the big show, Russell. and Sportsnet 960. The fan at the top of the hour, our man Julian McKenzie, covers the Flames for The Athletic. Has a piece on Elias Lindholm. We'll talk to J-Mac about that at 8.30. We'll play Impossible Flames Trivia. Your chance to win a $50 gift card to V.K. Bruco and some swag. But right now, one of our favorites, NHL senior writer on ESPN, on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar Guest Hotline, we say good morning to Greg Wish How are you?
4: Greetings. I'm good. I am uh, recovering from a week in Vegas. Oh, I guess would be the best term to put it. A oh, week. Yeah, yeah, I got there. Whoa. I got, <laughs> so we, it's funny, like, I didn't realize that the players tour, the players media tour was going to be in Vegas. And my wife and I already had a trip booked there because she scored tickets to see Adele, Ooh. you know? so How was that, by hello. the way? It, it, incredible. It yep. was incredible, dude. And, and And by the way, like, when you think about Adele, uh, the, the thing you think of is, oh, like, beautiful voice, great show. She had, like, fire. She had, like, a T-shirt cannon. Like, it's yeah. a real thing. Really? Adele. <laughs> yeah, for real. Like, at one point, she, and she operates it. She, like, she takes out this giant T-shirt cannon and starts firing T-shirts <laughs> into the crowd. It was awesome. Did she, she make the crowd do the wave? No, no wave. Oh, okay. I mean, again, uh, the crowd doing the wave would have been really kind of depressing because it means the, the fans are bored. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it was a really fun show. But the point, but point being is that I was there I was there for like a few days uh, before the media tour started. Mm. And then the media tour happens, And you're just like, oh, my God. This, I'm a, a little bit Vegas out, I think, at this point.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a fun city. But again, it's small doses.
0: Three nights, tight.
1: Yeah, small doses. you got to keep it close. Yeah. So- <laughs> I'd have exactly. to sit in my room the last probably two or three days because I'd be broke by then, maxed yeah, out on yeah. everything, Wish. so um, With all the blinds down for yeah, my pounding headache. I'm, I'm annoyed that yeah. I blew all my money. Um, Wish, wanted to ask you, before we get into this Mike Babcock story, which is super interesting, just want to get your thoughts on uh, Elias Lindholm. Has your opinion changed? Do you think he's leaning towards staying a Calgary Flame? Do you think he's going to get dealt? Because I brought this point up yesterday. Outside of maybe the Boston Bruins when it comes to on the ice, and being that number one center, I don't think there's a better situation for Elias Lindholm than right here in Calgary.
4: Yeah, I mean, that, unless you're talking about, you know, the, the, with relation to, like, how close someone may or may not be to a cup, um, but being that the league is pretty homogenous right now, I don't think there's really that one team. Like, like for example, like, if, if we had that situation with Colorado last year where Kadri leaves, and then you're like, okay, we need a, someone to play behind McKinnon, and we're going to win a few cups here, like, maybe that's a sexy spot for someone like Lindholm. But, you know, like you said, I mean, the, the opportunities to get the ice time, to get the, the notoriety, the spotlight, are few and far between right now for a center like him. And the messaging that he's put out there himself, I think, is encouraging. I mean, I, I think far more encouraging than anybody maybe thought it would sound a couple months ago. And it's, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to that we had two teams in the Calgary Flames and the Winnipeg Jets, where at one point in the summer – I mean, the sirens were going off. The fire sale signs were being constructed, and we're all thinking, what are these rosters going to look like if these guys don't want to actually be here? And then, lo and behold, you know, a number of the names that were bandied about for both teams end up still being on the roster on opening day,
1: probably. Yeah, how surprised are you that Noah Hannafin is still a Calgary Flame?
4: Shocked. Oh, God, <laughs> shocked. Like, that that's the one that, that really surprises me. I mean, much more so than Lindholm, only because at the I – remember, I remember being at the draft – and like here I hearing from sources, you know, this is going to be beginning of free agency trade or, you know, and, and just have pe- people kind of openly predicting where he's going to go and who's interested and, and what the talks have been. And, you know, there was a lot of speculation around Hannifin to the point where when you hear enough of it, you figure it's going to come to fruition. And the fact that it didn't, I mean, is frankly, like one of the more low-key shocking things that happened during the offseason. And I don't think that enough people have talked about the fact that he's still in
0: Calgary. Is that one of the things that's kind of been more surprising from Craig Conroy's tenure? He takes over and he's only really made the one trade, the Tyler Tofoli deal. And this is a team that had a lot of guys that could have been traded. What have you made of kind of his strategy here in his first offseason? Yeah,
4: I don't know if I, if I really love the doubling down on, on a roster that, that certainly had some issues, right? But, you know, even if he has familiarity with the organization, when a guy takes over as GM, sometimes it's, just, it's a matter of wanting to kind of take a patient, you know, view of the roster, kind of get a, a better understanding of the, the dynamics now that he's in the big chair. I've seen it before where you expect a guy to come in and start rolling heads or or making significant changes and it doesn't happen right away. But again, that doesn't mean it won't happen. Right. I mean, it's, I think that's the other thing too, is that, you know, maybe you roll with this, with this group for a little bit, and then you can make changes within the season. But um, the fact for me, it's less about Conroy and more about all that chatter about guys not wanting to be in Calgary anymore. (laughs) Like that was the, the modus operandi for a lot of this talk is the, you know, we we jokingly referred to to them as the sons of Kachuk, you know, (laughs) who just like decided to take matters into their own hands and, and, and find agency before, you know, their, their free agency began. And uh, for the most part, it it didn't come to fruition.
0: How key are these first few months as a general manager? Because you got to make sure that there's other, you know, everyone around the league is looking to not get beat on a deal, on a deal. They're all trying to win it. So how important are these first few months for Craig Connery as far as, you know, establishing what he's going to be like in this role? Well, I mean,
4: I, I think the, you've got two different competing thoughts there, right? First is that as a new general manager, you want to make sure that your colleagues know that you know what you're doing, that you're not going to be a pushover, that when they come to talk to you about your players, um, that you have as much an understanding of, of what you want from them as, as they want from you. But the other thought is, you know, how important are the first few months to a a general manager that just got the role? And I mean, they're not, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, when you hire a general manager, you're hiring a general manager for four to five years at a minimum, unless things go really sideways. Right. So, I mean, like in, in Conroy's case, he's going to have the helm for a bit. And so the first few months of this gig are going to be kind of to really understand what this roster looks like. And most importantly, obviously understand what this roster looks like under a new head coach and to see if some of the players, uh, cough cough Huberto, uh, that may have struggled under a previous regime, <laughs> find their game again uh, under a, a, a new voice behind
1: the bench. Uh, we, we've had this conversation. Is the Pacific Division the best division in hockey?
4: You know, I think it probably is, if only because, um, you know, even even the lower lights, I think, are going to be competitive. I, not the Sharks. The Sharks, I think, are clearly in a a real serious downswing here. But I mean, like you think about the ducks being a doormat for a while. I mean, they're a good young team. They're going to start up swinging at some point. The, I mean, the team, the, the division that's the other divisions that you, you're probably looking at are over in the East, you know, whether it's the Metro or the Atlantic and the Metro has the Flyers and they're going to be absolutely terrible. And, you know, the Metro has that sort of mushy middle. I mean, the uh, Atlantic has that sort of mushy middle of, of Ottawa and Buffalo and Detroit that uh, all seem like they, they want to start advancing up the standings, but then who knows? And then, you know, the other thing about the Atlantic, too, is who knows what Boston's going to end up being now that their center spot's been gutted. Um, so I, I think you could definitely make the argument from a competitive standpoint, from a top-to-bottom standpoint, the Pacific could be the, the toughest. But, you know, I, and that's, that's me saying that without it really crunching the numbers yet, as luckily I don't have to start making predictions until a few weeks later in, in, the, in the months.
1: Uh, NHL senior writer for ESPN, Greg Wyshynski, joining us here on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline, big show, Russick and Rose, 960 the fan. All right, Wish, uh, this uh, Mike Babcock story. I felt like maybe at the beginning it was a non-story and now it's starting to pick up a lot of legs. Like, what's your take on this whole situation? Is it getting blown out of proportion? If this isn't Mike Babcock, are we talking about this? Like, what's your feel on this whole thing? Because I feel like it's starting to get a little more serious than maybe we thought at the beginning.
4: Well, I, I think your point's a, a great one, which is that if it wasn't Mike Babcock, we, would be, we'd be talking about this, and the answer is, is no. But that's also something that the Blue Jackets had to be intrinsically aware of when they hired this guy, was that the, the scrutiny he was going to be under, that you know, if he's doing any of these little sports psychology tricks <clears throat> that he's done in the past, then they were going to play a lot differently now than they did in the past because there was going to be a hyper awareness of of what was happening behind the scenes. Um, as far as the scandal itself go, goes, so the, the jackets, I, I talked to a few people in the organization and like their, 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 their pushback on it is that they see it as a lot more innocent than it's being portrayed. They see it as, you know, someone who's used this trick in the past to get to know people. He shares his pictures. He sees your family. He gets to know what your de- situation is better. And, and, you know, that's kind of their take, and that's sort of the take that Boone Jenner and, and Johnny Goudreau put forth to the public as well. Now, the thing here that I find really interesting is that as the week has gone on, I think the, the NHLPA in particular has heard from some younger players who maybe don't have a family yet, <laughs> who maybe feel it is an incredible invasion of privacy to have a person in a position of power to ask to see the photos on your camera roll. And so I I think that there's a different generation of player that's been impacted differently than the veterans on the team by this behavior. And they're the ones that are kind of making a little bit of noise and the PA is trying to take care of them. And and I'll say two things about that. First, um, it is kind of incredible to think about how Babcock's biggest scandal in Toronto (laughs) was not understanding the emotions of a rookie and pulling a bunch of crap behind the scenes to embarrass him and Mitch Marner, and maybe the same thing is happening here. And the other thing is that if you talk about the seriousness of a matter, when I first heard the PA was going to Columbus, my first thought was, well, that's a chance for Marty Walsh to put his flag down and let his constituents Mm -hmm. know that he's going to be more active in this role than Don fear. But then, you know, when it became apparent that they were like conducting a pretty in-depth investigation and interviewing the players at the arena yesterday, I mean, they clearly heard something that's instigating not only that, but also the fact that this meeting with the NHL that was already on the books is going to you know, be Babcock heavy. So we'll see where it goes. I mean, at the end of the day, this is what the Jackets asked for in hiring this guy. We all said it at the time, mm-hmm. that as much of, of, a co- of a good coach you think this guy is, he's got some rotten tendencies, and there's no reason to believe that he's been contrite about any of it.
0: Greg, you mentioned that there's maybe, like, there's a generational gap between Boone Jenner and some of the younger players on that team, like Adam Fantilli. They're going to be at least 10 years apart in age. They're different family situations. And I just wonder, as, you know, we talk about head coaching and the changes all the time in the NHL as being an old boys club, you recycle old coaches. I do wonder if we have reached the point where the younger generation is just so vastly different than a lot of these older coaches that they can't survive in today's NHL, and we might be seeing the end of this kind of recycled coaches who have had some success in the league but have grown out of being able to connect with the modern player.
4: That, that and also just like the culture has changed, where mm-hmm. the, the, the kinds of things that, listen, a lot of the stuff that, that, that has gone on behind the scenes for years has been unacceptable. It's just that the culture supported it, and the culture never called it out. And, you know, as we had Babcock's abuse come out, as we had the situation in Chicago, like the, the ground has become more fertile for people to be honest about how these things make them feel, about whether or not it's acceptable and whether or not we should take this from people in positions of power. But the generational gap thing, I think, is, is, is also very true. I mean, Mike Babcock was coaching in 2003. <laughs> like, like, think about that. Like, that's a long time ago, yeah. dude. It's 20 years ago. Think about how athletes. Everything, media, everything has changed since then. I mean, you, you go up to somebody and say, "Can I see some pictures of your family in 2003?" Yeah. They're going to show you Polaroids. Okay, <laughs> like they're not going to have to hand you their phone, right? So it's like a lot's changed in that time. And um, and you know what you said kind of harkens back to what happened at the end of his tenure in Toronto, where Brendan Shanahan, the president of the Maple Leafs, literally said, "As Babcock gets fired." a lot of the things that, you know, may have been acceptable at some point are no longer acceptable from a coach. And, again, maybe maybe when we think about that kind of statement, we think about the verbal abuse of somebody or somebody getting whacked in the back of the head on the bench by their coach like we used to see, but it also goes for little things like, you know, can I see what's on your phone? You just can't do that for, like, a 19-year-old guy in, in the NHL. They're, they're going to be completely insulted and, and embarrassed by it.
0: I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but something that I've th- one of my takes that I've been percolating on for the last little bit here is that the, the role of the head coach, especially in the NHL, has changed drastically with younger players having so much access to skilled coaches and different technologies when they're coming up. Coaches no longer have to do as much X's and O's as manage the relationships and the personalities of a team. I feel like the primary and the secondary jobs have switched for a head coach in the NHL. Do you feel the same?
4: To a certain extent. I I think that a coach in the NHL is still someone who's installing systems and and figuring out how they want to play. And, and in many ways, I mean, I I think as much as, as skill coaches have certainly filled their role with the development of, of, younger players, if you talk to anybody in this league, that's really blossomed into a star um, they're going to credit a good head coach, which was with, with making them a more complete player. I'm thinking in particular of a guy like Jack Hughes in New Jersey, where, where if it wasn't for his, <laughs> his admiration of Lindy Ruff, Ruff might not have even been there at the beginning of last season to have the season that the devil's had. And Jack has talked about the fact that, you know, Lindy has been an instrumental guy in rounding out the totality of his game, teaching him the de- defensive side, Allowing him to understand that the things you do in your own end are going to directly lead to good things in the offensive end. Like stuff like that is invaluable. I mean, stuff like that is something that is handed down generation from generation from veteran coaches. And that's the good side of experience. Um, But, you know, coaching at the end of the day has always been about managing egos. That goes for any sport. I mean, it goes for the NHL, it goes to everything else, the NBA. It's about ice time. It's about who, you know, who's getting opportunities, who isn't. And in some cases, it's about you know, the, the latter part of that, who isn't. You know, if you're not getting the chances from a coach, you could either you know, be salty about it or, or you can figure out what it is about your game that is going to eventually break through. And, and those types of situations can lead young players to greater things.
1: But, but how tough, Wish, and we're I, just going down this rabbit hole now. How tough is it yeah, then sure. just to be a head coach? I get the whole you need to manage uh, these players and, and make sure, you know, it's a different player now. It's a different approach. But at the same time, like, I kind of feel for coaches, and here's why. There's a hell of a lot of pressure to win. Like it's not like oh it's okay um, it's okay Zgris. Uh, nice shift out there but I need a little more from you because my job's on the line here like the, the the there's a lot more pressure on a head coach than there is on a player the player's making a lot more money he'll find a job somewhere but like how impossible is it to be a head coach now where that hard ass coach is kind of a way of the dinosaur but at the same time man you gotta win games otherwise you're out of a job like how impossible is that to manage.
4: But it's it's that's always been like that. I mean, every coach that's been hired in the history of the NHL has been hired to
1: one day be fired. Like that's the no, gig. A hundred percent. But I mean, there it just it just, just seems like it makes the job even tougher.
0: Well, just you don't wait, have to wait. be. You don't have to rule with an iron fist. You just have to adapt and understand that there are other ways to be able to connect with your players and get the best out of them. You don't always have to do it with an iron fist and yell and scream. I, and I,
1: I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying like, we just forget this, the amount of pressure these guys are under just to win.
4: No, they're under a tremendous amount yeah. of pressure, except for the fact that, like you said, if you're a player, you can always get traded or sign somewhere yeah, else.
1: Absolutely. I mean,
4: how, how, how many coaches, <laughs> how many coaches are one and done? I mean, how, how many coaches have not gotten a second shot yeah. at being a head coach, even mediocre ones. I mean, Think, think about how many guys in this league that are on like their third or fourth gig after flaming out their first time. Pete DeBoer, like Gerard Gallant, like there are tons of guys that even in disastrous first uh, you know forays into NHL coaching have found second chances. So it's, it's not as if you know uh, I'm going to have to you know figure out how to flip burgers if we don't win this playoff game. I mean, it's not <laughs> that like that for a coach. Like a coach right. is going to get his, his second chances too.
1: Um, you, you wrote a story about, uh, rink boards. Uh, I know that was very polarizing at the beginning of last season, especially for fans, sometimes very distracting during the broadcast, but these things aren't going anywhere anytime soon. This is here to stay. It's just, uh, your latest piece on ESPN. Essentially the NHL is just trying to do a better job of making these things more seamless, right? Right. Wish.
2: Yeah. So
4: give that, if you're interested in, in this technology, give that story a read because it kind of lays out, the things they've learned from last year and then also like what they're thinking about this year and in the future. And, and so they have heard criticism that they've taken to heart, like during the season, they didn't really announce it, but they added motion blur to the ads to make them less, you know, obvious when the, the play is, is going on. Uh, they, they played around with the brightness of the ads to kind of make the, the lighting look more natural, like it's in the arena. And they're open to what I think is the biggest criticism from fans at this point, which is that may- maybe don't have the the animated SUV uh, driving around in the corner when the players are skating in the opposite direction. Like it's the most disorienting and stupid thing that is happening on television right now for the NHL. And and at least they're open-minded to maybe tweaking it a little bit so the ads know where the puck is and, and know you know maybe not to animate the ad at that point. Um, but, as far as the tech goes like i I know it's it's invasive, and I know it's been really hard for for myself and a lot of people to kind of like wrap our brains around watching hockey in a different way. but you know I, the tech is kind of interesting in the sense that there's going to be ways to use it to enhance the viewing um, the, the the viewing process like they're going to put stats on the boards eventually when a guy scores a goal, the boards will light up and it'll be a goal celebration you know it can convey information during the shootout as to who's shooting and and what their stats are against the goalie. Like, there's going to be some storytelling elements to this technology that they haven't really mm. figured out yet and, and haven't executed yet um, that'll hopefully take this this thing out of it just being a, a, a distraction like 70% of the time.
1: Um, is there anything worse than talk of NHL expansion, Wish? Because it's like, please no, more teams. <laughs> and Atlanta again, really? Atlanta again, seriously? It's a soulless sports city. You can't go back to Atlanta for the third time, can they?
4: They're, so we talked to Bill Daly about this in Vegas, and their contention is that they've, they've figured it out in a way that they haven't the previous two times. Sure. Which I know is, is really funny. and it's Ridiculous. And, uh, and, and, but, but like, so their, their contention is that if you put the arena in the suburbs, the demographics of Atlanta have changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Uh, the Braves moved a little bit out of the city. Their attendance went up. You know, their, their contention is that if you if you have an owner in a new arena and you put it outside of the city, that there's a possibility for it to thrive. And and I mean, they clearly love the media market. They know how big and important it is. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm not I'm a little bit more open-minded to expansion than you are. I, I do think the talent pool of players in this league um, is is still very robust. I think the new expansion rules mean that these teams can be competitive pretty pretty early, so we don't have to sit around watching you know. The, the Ottawa Senators in the 1990s being led by, like, Troy Millette. Yeah. You know, he gets some pretty decent players in these teams now. Um, but, like, so I, I wouldn't mind if we, if we had two expansion teams and a relocation if, if it, Arizona doesn't work Ooh. out. Um, Salt Lake City, then, here we go like, Yeah, Salt Lake If you go Salt Lake City, then Houston, and then either Portland and Atlanta, like, yeah, I think you're doing okay for yourself. And, and, of course, if they go back to Atlanta – you guys up there should love it. That means you're getting another team in like a decade. Like, you know, (laughs) Saskatoon, here we come, right? Like, if there's another team in Atlanta. But
1: when does it stop? Like, and poor Quebec City built that arena and will never house an NHL team. But when does it stop? Like, how many teams is enough? I like, like, an, I, like an, eight, and just, I really like eight teams in each division, yeah, but i got to say. But, but Wish, you know what I don't like? Because I just feel like this is just a huge cash grab for the league and the owners because they want to charge like $2 billion now, yep. apparently, for an expansion team. It just feels like a cash grab. And I just don't know how it's good for the game. A team in Salt Lake really is good for the NHL or Portland? Like, I just... I, I don't know what the end game is. In Atlanta, it will not work. Eventually, it will not work again. Like, I just, you just beat your head against the wall sometimes with some of the decisions the NHL makes. It just feels like a cash the interesting
4: grab. Thing, the interesting thing about Salt Lake um, that I, I haven't heard a lot of people voice, one of the knocks on Quebec City is that putting a team there doesn't make new fans. Like,
1: mm-hmm. it's redundant. You know, right.
4: everybody there is already a hockey fan.
1: And it's also a like, tiny right, market it, corporately, too. Like, there's no money there. The, the unfortunate right. part are,
4: are the demographics of salt lake city like really that outside of the purview of who currently watches the nhl like like right. if you put a team in atlanta or houston you can clearly make the argument that the league could reach new fans it could it could market to new yes. audiences it's, what, it's one of the reasons why i've been kind of a, a defender of the coyotes it's like you know they've made outreach to, to the Hispanic community. Like they've tried to bring more people to hockey. Austin Matthews. I, I've always felt Salt Lake is yeah exactly. I've always felt Salt Lake is is the same sort of redundancy problem that Quebec City has from mm-hmm. a demographic standpoint. But no one seems to point it out because hey, it's an open arena. It's a guy who wants to own a hockey team, and 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 we can keep the Coyotes in the West. That's kind of that's kind of the reaction I've I've heard from people.
0: Just can't let. Atlanta fans have hockey, George. Like Atlanta wants their hockey back. Oh, no, did they love?
1: It's a soulless sports city. Like even their teams, they have there. People don't support them. Like it's the Braves used to go to the World Series, and you'd have you get tickets to the World Series. Just walk up to the gate. Like that's what that's what the city of Atlanta is. It's a soulless. You can go to Kansas city. city, get Mahomes. They love their to
0: buy college football. The they we love already their- bought some of the Royals. You can yeah. do that. They
1: love their college we, football. We,
4: we, we- we clearly have the solution right in front of our faces and how to make hockey in Atlanta work, which is that you have to hire Dion Sanders as a coach. Yeah, yeah but there yeah, you go. Yeah, hire obviously. him as a coach.
1: He'd probably yeah, do a great be job.
4: Into it. He'll be on TV all the time. He'll he'll make the team relevant. We could even call them the Atlanta Prime Time. Bring <laughs> in the
1: Yes. You think he
0: would take that uh, pay cut from NCAA coaching to the NHL? <laughs> He'd only lose like what, 27 million dollars on his yep. current deal? <laughs>
4: Yeah, exactly, and and then and then we'd have to deal with you know Batman having to answer questions on whether or not it's appropriate for a coach to wear a hat and sunglasses during his <laughs> press conferences, and okay, let, and then it becomes a whole other issue. Okay,
1: I, I'm just going to ask you one more out there question, wish, and we'll let you go, and we appreciate your time. Which is more likely to happen, an NHL team in Europe or a second NHL team in Toronto?
4: Oh, I I would Europe. so. Oh, London's in Europe, so that's 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 the only one that I'm thinking of could be a possibility one day insofar as like, the travel of it all. Um, but I would probably say a second NHL team in Toronto. I, I really think that we came close when the Leafs were garbage, and then they got good, and then the, the, the buzz about trying to put another team there really quieted down. But I've always thought that Western Conference Toronto team counterpoints the Leafs. They play a little bit outside the city. Um, in Markham, or someplace like that, i think I think it would thrive. And And again, like when you talk about media and stuff, you know, having everybody in the league coming through Toronto, west East, at all times would, would only be a good thing for the league, too, from a media perspective. So mm. I'll take the second team in Toronto. I, I think it could support it, but it has to be within within counterbalance of the Leafs. and it also has to be with the understanding that, you know, if the Leafs are playing for a cup, there will be nobody who is a fan of the other team for at least like a month, right? Yeah, like like yeah. everybody will come home if, if that um,
1: happens. I, th- I think it would, it, would, it would work more in Hamilton than a second team in actually Toronto because everyone in yeah. that area would gravitate like London, Kitchener, Niagara. They would go to Hamilton games and not right. like the second team in Toronto because they would be like the Clippers. They'd be the White Sox. They'd be the Angels. Like that's what that second team would feel like. In Toronto uh, but mind you the Leafs have zero success for us uh, since 1967
4: right. so so now all we have to do is wait for somebody to reinvent the Blackberry and then we can get yes. a team in Hamilton <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly
1: he, he was that close he was that close to getting the team close. if he didn't beat down the doors of the NHL and Gary Bettman didn't like that I
0: enjoyed the movie actually it yeah was, it was a good. real good movie I real enjoyed movie. it a lot I, if yeah. you haven't seen
2: Blackberry
4: ch- check it out it's good stuff
1: Glenn uh, Howerton nailed
0: it mm.
1: I wish uh, terrific stuff as always thanks for this pal anytime Greg Waschitsky in the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline, NHL senior writer ESPN.
3: Uh, you, when you guys were talking about the coaches and whatnot with the NHL and the generational guy, I went through the major four sports and I was going through like, oh. okay, so in the NFL, there's only been one. There's only one head coach that's still around that was around in 2003, Bill Belichick. In the NBA, two: Greg Popovich, Rick Carlisle. Mm-hmm. In Major League Baseball, five: uh, Bob Melvin, Tito uh, Francona, Dusty Baker, Bruce Bochy. Buck Showalter. old dudes, yeah. In the NHL, of the current head coaches, eight of them were still coaching in 2003. Mike Babcock, Paul Maurice, Lindy Ruff, Peter Laviolette, John Tortorella, Mike Sullivan, Bruce Cassidy, Rick Bonus were all head coaches in 2003. Old like, boys club. Old boys club.
0: And if Babcock doesn't even coach a game, yeah, I seriously wonder if it might be okay. Over.
3: But but at
1: the same time, and if Sutter was still okay, around, you could throw him in like there I, too. I I get I get your point, <laughs> but
3: the pool is a lot smaller for NHL coaches than it is in those. But other maybe sports. The, well, I get that. But like, there's but tons of assi- there's a ton of assistant coaches that are young, up and coming. The NFL has embraced young coaches, and it's seen a great amount of offense and defense. It's just the NFL is so much better. I feel with the younger coaches, with they they're closer to the players, they vibe a little bit better. <laughs> NHL, it's like. Your grandpa's coaching you still. It's I, I, weird. I get it. But the thing is, in the
1: NFL, like it's about the league's change based on the rules and offense and systems. Because the NFL coach is the most important coach in all the big four major sports. Course. And it's not even close because you implement yeah. a game the plan. Work is... The NFL, it's not about managing personalities in mm-hmm. the NFL. It's, it's putting in a game plan. Mm-hmm. In the NBA, it's about managing personalities. That's what it is. Because... Yeah, there are plays you can do. NHL, it's about managing a bench, throwing the right guys out Mm -hmm. at the right time. When it comes to actually systems and that, Mm -hmm. it's not that complex like it is. And baseball, it's totally about managing yeah. personalities now based on mm-hmm. analytics and like dusty baker's a good guy everyone loves the lizard yeah. with this toothpick mm-hmm. with the world series with the houston it was like the older guys managed... embrace it a yeah. little bit better like again like i don't want like again i get what you're saying about the quote unquote the old boys network but there's a reason why a mm-hmm. lot of those guys are still around mm-hmm. because they're good at what they do regardless of what their age is. And just saying old boys network just paints a brush on guys who are actually good at their jobs, Mm -hmm. because there's a reason why some of those guys are still coaching in the NHL outside of Mike Babcock being some of the stupid stuff he does. You talk to anybody who's ever played for Mike Babcock. Nobody is more prepared and knows the game like Mike Babcock. I, I just,
0: I don't, I disagree. There are coaches that can prepare for games and understand a game plan and understand an opposition, Without being a total
1: dick to their players. I'm not saying be a dick. I'm not saying be a dick. But I'm just saying we're we're also forgetting. Like, Just put yourself in the coach's position where you have the most pressure on anybody in the organization. You're no, the one they look to first if you win or lose. Like, That's the first thing teams do is replace the coach. You think Ryan Huska has more pressure on him than Jonathan Huberto? Not a chance. Right. But Jonathan Huberto ultimately um, has a lot of pressure on him. But he ultimately has a guaranteed deal. That pays him $10 million a season. He's okay. True, but... Right. At the same time,
0: Ryan Husker will get another job. Like, he can get fired. Jonathan
1: Huberto can still play in the league.
0: here's the other thing. If Ryan Husker gets fired, he still gets paid the contract that he gets. Sure. Right? And, like, look at Mike Babcock. He got fired. He didn't care. He made a... Crap ton
1: of money. We, we got to run. Uh, we'll, Julian McKenzie will join us Oh, Julian's
3: next. listening. He loves this. Yeah, yeah. We'll We'll, have, yeah. we'll, we'll
1: <laughs> talk to Julian McKenzie about this uh, straight ahead. Uh, he wrote a great priest on Elias Lindholm. We'll talk about that. We'll play Impossible Flames Trivia. It's the Big Show. Wrestling and Sports at 960. The Fan.